From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern, and you can find our podcast 24-7 wherever you get yours. Be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle, at SXM Business, and find me on LinkedIn. So as our regular listeners know, we really love to bring you role models who can help us see what's possible for ourselves, explore tactics and strategies for personal success, and look at the big societal issues that shape our experiences as women and girls. Today, we're going to do all of the above by exploring one of society's most beloved and reviled women, who is emerging as one of this summer's biggest celebrities, that impossibly tall, slender, high-heeled addict, otherwise known as Barbie. My guest for this discussion is a role model in her own right, the Emmy-nominated filmmaker Susan Stern. She's the director of Barbie Nation, an unauthorized tour, which will be re-released in celebration of the movie's 25th anniversary on June 27th. In this documentary, Susan takes a look into the bizarre world of Barbie, delving into the history of the doll, the ironies behind her conception, and her devout adult fan base, while helping us all understand the extraordinary businesswoman, Ruth Handler, who created Barbie and founded Mattel. So Susan, I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you for joining. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Do you mind if I share a little bit more about you before we get started? No, please go ahead. So Susan's a director, producer, and investigative journalist whose documentaries include Barbie Nation and The Self-Made Man. She's earned two Emmy nominations, won the Duke University Center for Documentary Studies Filmmaker Award, a Cine Gold Eagle, and a Golden Gate Award at the San Francisco International Film Festival. Susan's a former chair of New Day Films, the educational film distribution co-op that distributes her films, and today she is our guest. So Susan, I gotta ask, this was some time ago. What led you to do a documentary on Barbie? Well, I initially did it. It was, I got to blame it on my daughter, Nora, <laughs> who is featured in the film with her still best friend, Claire. And, you know, as many of you know, if you have uh, girl children, somehow Barbies come to you. You don't necessarily have to buy them. They just <laughs> arrive. And then, yeah, and then, you know, I find you put them in a dark place, like a closet or a drawer, and they breed. And then you turn around, you open the door, and suddenly you have 20 of them somehow. You know, sometimes there's just one Ken, so you're not sure what's going on there, but there's just like all these Barbie dolls. Right. And then, and then you know, so I would play Barbie. I like to play with my daughter. And uh, I saw my daughter, Nora, one day, and she's playing that one of the Barbie dolls is jealous of the other Barbie doll. And I said, Nora you know, women don't have to be jealous of other women. And she just looked at me and she said, mom, how about first we play what I want to play and then we can play what you want to play. Go Nora. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. I must've done something right. So I started telling this story to other people and they started telling me their stories and each one was stranger than the next. You know, I, I came up with my own personal theory that there's only two types of people in the world, the Barbie glorifiers <laughs> and the Barbie defilers. And <laughs> then I and went out and met one camp or the other. So let me ask you, um, you didn't have Barbies growing up, did you? Oh, yes, I did. I was okay. uh, I had the number one Barbie. I was born in 1953 and Barbie came out in 59. So I had that first Barbie in the black and white bathing suit. And 
that's amazing. I was not allowed to have Barbie. I had love, hope, peace, and charity dolls instead. I'm so sorry. And then the same mother who refused to buy me Barbies bought them despite my protests for my daughter. Did you ask her to explain that? Um, Yeah, she told me that I was being crazy and she thought Ellie would love them. Um, And they were a hit for a while, I got to say. But in the in your journey, did you have a journey with Barbie? Did you fall in love with her when you first met her? Did you see her differently as a mom? No, I was one of the defilers. So the original Ah. Barbie dolls, they just had hair. It was only rooted around the edges of their Mm -hmm. head, but you didn't know that because it was pulled back in that ponytail. So I like cut the ponytail off and the hair just fell down like that. And that was about it. And I got some other doll and tore her off. So yeah, I... (laughs) You were an experienced defiler. So, yeah, I was an experienced. Okay, so back up, because I want to know a little bit about your career journey, how you became a filmmaker, and got it got to the point where you could make this extraordinary documentary. Yeah, I, um, I always loved words. Uh, so I was a writer from a very young age. I was a poet. Uh, I was a poet in college. I became a journalist in college uh, for the uh, Daily Cal of UC Berkeley. Um, I became a journalist. I became a print journalist. Um, And then print began to die. Uh, And newspapers began to close. And the last newspaper I worked for, the Oakland Tribune, it went bankrupt. And I got a job in television news. And uh, then... uh, my friend Terry Zweigoff, who a lot of people know made Crumb, um, my husband, my late husband, was an underground cartoonist. One of the things not mentioned in your introduction is my other new film that is now streaming is called Bad Attitude, The Art of Spain Rodriguez, about my husband, who was an underground cartoonist. Um, I saw Terry make Crumb and interview Spain. And I thought, well, what am I going to do? I'd started to work for television news uh, in San Francisco. But um you know, it's a little superficial <laughs> television <laughs> news. And so I thought, well, if Terry could make a documentary, I could make a documentary. Uh, and I went back to City College to learn how to do film. And okay. me and my associate producer, Tris Harrington, we borrowed the cameras from City College and started filming people with Barbie dolls. First of all, there's another testimony to the power of seeing somebody else do something. You had a role model in your own midst. Yeah. Um, but I'm curious, and um, and you answered part of my question with you went to City College, but as a writer, somebody who's host so steeped in words, how did you learn to tell stories visually? I didn't, it didn't seem much different to me. What was daunting to me, and this again also seems like something having to do with some of the sexism a lot of us have internalized technology felt difficult to me. Mm. I asked myself, why didn't I ever go into television news? Why did I go into print? You know, just like, you know, piece of paper and a pencil that seemed interesting. The technology of television seemed daunting. The technology of film video seemed daunting and was daunting. And And was even more mechanical than it is now. Yes. Yes. And it, it's very mechanical now. I mean, you know, it's all digital, but, right. um, you know, you have to know your stuff. You have to, it's mechanical still, even though it's digital, it's very, it's not words. 
Right. You need the machinery to work in order to give you the content to tell the story. That's right. You find that your storytelling changed once you um, had that other dimension of time and sound and motion. I don't think it did. I was always very visual. My poetry is very visual. I think the only thing I did learn is occasionally to shut up. You know, (laughs) (laughs) with print interviews, it doesn't matter if you talk over each other, but not with film. So as this idea started to develop in you, how did you go from this aha moment that you're realizing there's something to explore here to um, funding people to interview and you're on like on your way to make the film? Right. Uh, Well, you know, like I say, we borrowed the equipment from the school. (laughs) So we were using the school's equipment. We were doing everything ourselves, myself and Trish Harrington, who is everything else but me. Um, The first thing I did, because I'm a journalist, was was to, um, you know, I'm trying to figure out how I figured it out because it was 1994. It was just the beginning of the internet that no one else had done a film on Barbie. Uh, Mm -hmm. There hadn't been a documentary made on Barbie. That was the first thing I checked. Um, and then when we began, I have to say, we had so much. I don't know. Are you familiar with the term reporter's karma? No, but I'm game to learn about it. Okay. There were so many times when we just got lucky um, in bizarre ways. So, for example, I reached out to Mattel right away. And the first thing they said, and this is very interesting in light of the fact that the Greta Gerwig Barbie film is coming out. The first thing they said is, we aren't doing anything Barbie. We don't do film about Barbie. That is a decision. We're not doing that. Um, and for that matter, neither are you. <laughs> <laughs> they were not um, welcoming. Um, but I just kept going. You know, I think I talked to some lawyers who said, well, they can't stop you from interviewing people and showing Barbie dolls. And um, I went to a Barbie doll festival that was held by um people into Barbie, not held by Mattel, but I met lawyers and and representatives of Mattel there. And somehow we hit it off. And so somehow they gave me access and I got access, of course, in writing. And they sent me, they sent me a reel of the old Barbie commercials. That's just, I mean, because you had, there's incredible footage in the film. Yes. And they sent that to me. And they ultimately cooperated with me after okay. they first said they wouldn't. You got to tell me more. How, how did you do this? Did you charm them? Did you persuade them? How did you get I, them I guess we, it just feels like we hit it off. It just felt like we hit it off. And suddenly these people opened the door for me. Like I said, yeah, I have incredible. I have all the old Barbie commercials, which are in the film. And then likewise, a very similar thing happened with Ruth Handler, where then Mattel did have a big Barbie Festival in Orlando, which they let me come in and film. And then I said, can I have an interview with Ruth Hill? And they said, you know, who are you? You're like someone from City College in San Francisco. Um, And no, she doesn't have any time because she's doing an interview with Connie Chung. It was like Connie Chung was there and all these other really important interviews. And I said, well, how about if I just like walk with her? from one interview to the next, you know, I'll just walk with her and we'll film her walking from interviews. They said, okay, you can do that. So we did that. And then they said, well, one of the interviews is canceled. So you can have a slot with her. 
So we did this incredible interview. I have an incredible interview with Rune Handler and we hit it off. So then she allowed me to come back and interview her in her penthouse in Los Angeles and film a scene with her husband, Elliot Handler, who was an incredible uh, designer and his designs are in the film. And then she even let me somehow, we even arranged that we would film a scene with her daughter, Barbara Siegel, who of course Barbie's named after. And we filmed this incredible scene where mother and daughter discuss how the daughter felt about the mother working. What you captured was so, it hit on so many different notes Mm -hmm. that don't often come up when people the people that I know talk about Barbie or think about Barbie that um, and you covered a wide swath of kind of opinions and orientations about Barbie. Um, And even just in this, your ability to get all of these people to connect with you, were you going into this process pro Barbie? Did you have Mm. any, um, was there any other dimensions to how you saw Barbie at the time? Um, I'm interested in one in your influence tactics, but also in your orientation to Barbie as not just um, a a journalist and a storyteller and a documentary filmmaker, but a grown woman and a mother at that stage. Right. Yeah. Um, I've just to me, the most important thing. And I think this we see is becoming more and more important as artificial intelligence takes a greater role in our lives is that creativity is all we have. That's all we have is being human, maybe creativity and our mistakes. You know, those are the <laughs> things that make us human. Right. Um, and um, that's what I saw. The Barbie doll is just a tool. It's just a piece of plastic, you know, people who could be pro it or against it. It's kind of absurd. She's a, a piece of plastic. She's an incredible lens to see, society and to play out our fantasies. And that's what I saw in my daughter. I mean, my husband too, who's an underground cartoonist, he also played Barbie with our daughter, you know, and they would play, (laughs) I forget. I've tried to remember what the games he would play. Somehow his Barbies and Ken's, they ended up in court because (laughs) I don't know if Barbie was sexually (laughs) harassing the Ken's or vice versa, but they had some legal drama going. And, um, That was really funny because he was really kind of a very macho guy. So I just saw Barbie as this lightning rod, as a Rorschach test, as a lens uh, that we could see so much. Yeah, the lightning rod thing is fascinating um, because so much energy um, arrives in different directions. And in particular the way that you captured this adult community, the Barbie fandom just blew me away. Um, One, how did you learn that there was like these Barbie festivals and how did they hit you when you went there for the first time? Yeah, well, of course, as you said, I'm a reporter. I think all good reporters are investigative reporters. So I use my skills to burrow deeper and deeper into the Barbie world. There were local Barbie clubs. I think I probably first found the local Barbie clubs. Um, Bay Area Barbie dealer, Sandy Holder, who still runs the Doll Attic. um, She was wonderfully helpful to me in connecting with the club. Franklin Lim Lau, who's a character in the film, who's unfortunately... Uh, no longer in the human realm. 
uh, was really important. And um, I just love these people. I loved what they did. I felt that, I mean, there's one of my favorite lines in the film is, um, you know, Barbie really shows us how human beings can take the most mass produced of things and then use them to create some sort of completely exceptional and authentic life. And that's what I saw in these festivals. People would decorate tables with Barbie centerpieces and they would, the tables would compete to each dress Barbie in a different way. There were Barbie fashion shows where people dress up as Barbie and they dance and sing. There were Barbie prayers. It was um, really beautiful. So it's so, I, I, cause I, I'm going to be straight with you. I've been anti-Barbie for years and until oh. I saw the documentary, um, mm. and we'll talk more about why, and hopefully maybe you'll change my mind. We'll see. But until I saw the documentary, I hadn't thought about Barbie as a catalyst for creativity. Mm-hmm. And you presented it with such a plum. And to see that it's not just children's creativity, but adult creativity. Were there any patterns that you saw in the community of adult Barbie fans? Mm, that's a really good question. And thank you for saying that. And you're not the only person. I, I get people who say to me that they hated Barbie until they saw Barbie Nation. And what's really interesting to me in the marketing of the Greta Gerwig Barbie movie, in the latest trailer, it says, if you love Barbie, this is the film for you. If you hate Barbie, this is the <laughs> film for you. So they know that is real. That's an interesting question, though, about trends or themes in the Barbie world. And I understand from reading that the Barbie fan world has gotten even more incredible. Like there's you can pay. I've read that you can pay to have animators. And I think it I think some of them were in Vietnam um, creating custom animations for you around your dolls. So you send them your plot line. And in the in the case that I saw illustrated, you know, a Ken is dressed as this woman's father mm-hmm. and the Barbie is dressed as her and they enact some very meaningful scene uh, before he died. So, um, no, all I see is that people enact really deep things with Barbie. You see Franklin in Barbie Nation enacting his childhood in the Philippines. And what it was like to come out, not come out, but to be a gay man, a gay child in the Philippines. Yeah, in a very Christian community in the Philippines. In a very Christian community, right, where he did Christian things with Barbies. You see Sandy really grappling with the feeling, and I don't mean to demean it, that a lot of Americans feel, or a lot of people in the world feel, which is that things were better at some sort of time in the past and that things are really dangerous now and that they were better. And I I don't want to put that down because a lot of us, I don't think it's true that things were better in the past, but I understand that I feel like everyone else kind of terrified of the present. Oh, uh, t- terrified of the present and the future along yeah. with it. Um, yeah. but, but with some of that, the nostalgia that was expressed. Yeah. It was pressing my anti-Barbie buttons. To oh, be yes. Perfectly honest. Yeah. Because so, it was in a couple of things. To me, there's, I've mm. always had the, um, both the longing, like as a little girl, and I'd say even as a big grown-up person, the longing to be that slender blonde incarnation of the American woman. 
mm-hmm. and at the same time deeply resent it and understand how impossible that is for any human being. Um, disturbing stories that we've heard about women who have had enormous plastic surgery to try and look like Barbie and just how disfiguring it is to try and 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 how heartbreaking it is to see somebody need to pursue that goal. And so that's fed my anti-Barbie feelings. Um, and that the nostalgia that was presented was also about a time in history where gender roles were very cemented and that a lot of us have been working since then to change. Um, and to me, they were intertwined. So I had a hard time with that part of it, but you could still see um, that there was so much love for Barbie at the same time. Right. Those are some really great questions, Laura. Um, yeah. Wow. Nostalgia as a really negative force. Yeah. And it really can be for all the reasons you said. Um, on the two points you said that are so important, one being body image and race. Um, yes. One of the things I have to plug somebody else's film. I have to plug the third Barbie film that is coming out. I don't know whether you have heard. It's just no. in the a festival circuit now, a documentary called Black Barbie, um, which is made by director uh, Ligaria Davis. Um, It's about the Black Barbie doll. It's a really deep film into the issues of race and body image and Barbie. Uh, The director Ligaria uh, is related to her aunt is a woman named Beulah Mae Mitchell, who is the third, only the second black person to be employed at Mattel and was a very key person in terms of Mattel's evolution of making um, Black Barbie. I'm very happy. The big thing that's different in the new edition of Barbie Nation is that the, a Black Barbie segment that I filmed back in 1998 but didn't get into the film is restored to Barbie Nation. I edited it in myself. It wasn't in in, in 98 because I got really deeply into the issue of um, Black Dolls and the history of Black Dolls. And I just, it, it I couldn't fit it onto the film. And at the time, I remember saying to my editor, the issue of Black Barbie and Black Dolls has to be a complete film. It wasn't there then. It is there now. It's called Black Barbie. Uh, and it deals really wonderfully uh, with that issue of race and body image. Gender, I agree with you. Um, But the thing is that um, trans people, as as well in Barbie Nation and LGBT people, have subverted the Mm -hmm. female, the Barbie and Ken images. They've subverted both of them. And, you know, I like that. It was part of, and to give credit to the film, the sections that you added, I didn't realize you had added them on Black Barbie. Um, it was really illuminating and to see the love that was there. You did a really nice job with it. Mm-hmm. And also to see the LGBTQ and trans pop, like the whole population that was finding a catalyst for self-expression. And um, another, it's like another manifestation of the importance of having adult dolls to tell our stories. Yeah. It, it was so beautifully told, and I had never thought about how joyous and potent that could be. Yeah, thank you. So I, I, while I went in a hater, like I'm, I came out seeing many, many more dimensions that I went in understanding or even contemplating. That's a real credit to the film. Thank you. Thank you. 
Um, I'm also really interested in the business story and what you find out because um, my reading of the stock market, I mean, Mattel is involved in the Greta Gerwig film and that they allowed this to happen. This is the first time they've allowed there to be a live action Barbie film. Um, and um, I think it's Warner Brothers that's making the film. Okay. Both of these companies, um, I think their stock has not been doing so well. <laughs> recently and i'm 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 thinking this film is very important i hear from some of the young mothers that i know that in recent years barbie has not been the go-to doll for young girls that the disney prince princesses oh, have, have taken over yeah um i know this is true outside of the united states i have a friend in mexico i've been talking to about it um so i'm really curious to see what this film does for barbie sales it's, I'm very curious, and also to see how it captures the popular imagination. Mm -hmm. If it does. It, if it does. Um, I know that um, my daughter has already put July 21st on the chalkboard in our kitchen, which is when the Barbie movie premieres, in pink chalk with the logo. Oh, um, my God. Yes. How old so is your like, daughter? 21. Oh. oh. She's a gender studies major. We're on it. <laughs> Oh, that's so interesting. Also a big Greta Gerwig fan. So very curious to see, one, what it becomes in her hands, but also the popular reaction to it. And it, and all these complexities um, that, you know, if they come up between the two of us, and certainly as you uncovered as you did the film, I'm interested to see what happens. You mentioned in the first half of the show that in your documentary, there are these two just enchanting little girls playing with Barbie. Smart self-aware. Um, and one of them's actually your daughter and her still best friend, correct? Yes. Yes. So there was a scene where her, Nora was um, explaining to you the importance of being pretty. Mm. And it really struck me. Could you tell the audience a little bit about what that part of the film, what, what the scene was about um, and how you reacted to it as her mom, which we don't get to see on during the film. Right. Well, um, it's a scene where Nora, uh, who's four and a half years old at the time, and Claire, also four and a half, her best friend, are playing Barbie dolls and being simultaneously interviewed by me. And Nora says that it's actually important to be pretty, because um, if you're not just even a little bit pretty, uh, you may not have any friends. And it's like, wow, that's, you know, one of the many stunning things people say in the movie. And <laughs> poor Nora. I think she's been embarrassed by having said that, but really, I mean, I think parents, anyone who's a parent or you should understand about children that young, they're perfect societal mirrors. They're mm -hmm. just, you know, the, the point of that phrase is not because Nora thinks this at the age of four and a half and she does think it, but she just is repeating what she's heard. And I fact very guiltily, I recall, um, you know, I think she was, in fact, mirroring a conversation that my sister and I uh, had had in earshot of our two little girls. My sister's daughter is a year older than Nora, so Nora's first cousin. And my sister's daughter was the person who gave Nora her first Barbie. And they were close as little girls, one year apart. Um, and I think the two girls overheard something that their mothers were talking about. Uh, and... Um, so, you know, as my daughter, actually, my wonderful daughter, very <laughs> emotionally intelligent daughter once said to me when I think I had to fess up to saying something 
that was not body positive. Um, and I apologized to her about saying something that was undoubtedly harmful to her about, you know, watching her weight or something. She said, mom, you're, you're infected with this disease of sexism, you know, like the disease of racism and infects us all, you know, it's, it's good to know about it. Um, but you're infected just like we all are. And it was stunning to see that we're infected even as four-year-olds. Um, that it, it 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 it's part of the way we make sense of the world at such a startlingly young age. That's right. I mean, I think I remember reading, and I don't know if it was in um, when I made the film, but children, things like sexual preference, sexual identity, um, sexual attraction, they go back about to the age of two. Mm-hmm. So it's not Barbie's fault. She just becomes the mirror for it. That's right. It's not Barbie's fault. And we do pass these things along. I mean, children absorb them. Without the a doubt. Yes. Um, although there is the question of when Barbie is presented as the toy, um, to what degree does that then become the standard? Well, what I always felt is you have to, I'm a big talker. I like to talk, as you can see. I always believe the thing to do is to really talk to your kids. So I watch cartoons. My husband, the underground cartoonist, watch <laughs> right. cartoons because we like cartoons with our kid. And so they received, Nora was, her media literacy, which is Barbie is a piece of media, Um you know, began very, very young. So we watch TV and we say, do you understand that these are commercials and they're trying to sell you something? In fact, the whole show is a commercial. All media is trying to sell you something. You have to know that. Yeah, there's a great piece from Free to Be You and Me that Carol Channing does um, about teaching kids how to watch commercials on TV. Mm-hmm. And that woman with all her soap and wax and scrubbers and cleaners and bleach, she's an actress. Um, anyway, a shout out to Free to Be You and Me. Um, one of the things that you do such a beautiful job of explaining in the film, and a lot of it um, is through the interviews with Ruth Handler, is mm-hmm. why she, the genius of why she created Barbie. So a, a way that she observed her own daughter's play and saw something major. Can you explain what that was to us? Yeah, in the film, like I said, there's an incredible scene with Ruth Handler and her daughter, Barbara Siegel. uh, And I managed to score from somebody the old paper dolls they would have been playing with. And she talks about watching her daughter play paper dolls and we'll see all these beautiful clothes and all this fashion that she loved and that there was no adult doll at that time. And there wasn't. You know, I also researched the history of all dolls and there were baby dolls. There were some, I think they were called Madame Alexander dolls, but mm-hmm. they were really disproportioned. They always would have heads that were too big. So there wasn't <laughs> any doll that you that was really representative of a human being. And that's what Ruth saw. I mean, I wish Ruth were here. She was such an incredible entrepreneur. Incredible. And I want to talk about her a little bit and learn more about her because I was just so struck by her genius on multiple levels. You know, there was this, this moment of recognition that she, of seeing like a true innovator where there's this human response to mm. what's the adult version of myself? Who can I be? Yes. 
And that without that, without that vehicle to imagine ourselves in the future, all we're left with is imagining this is my baby. This is my sister. This is me, but not this is future me. And that has huge implications. Right. And the Ken dolls too. You know, I, um, and my current partner collects antiquities and we have an ancient female figure. And I've always been fascinated by the very ancient female figures. And I don't know what's going on now with scientists, but they always used to have these female figures with the big hips and the big breasts and say, this is a fertility symbol. The Venus of Willendorf, right? Right, the Venus of Willendorf. So I felt, that that is so reductive. This is a doll. (laughs) You know, we've been playing with dolls Throughout all of human history, we've used them to imagine our futures. And it's not just about the breasts and thighs. Uh, It's about, like you say, our whole human future. And we saw the cathartic way that people, adults, um, like the gentleman from the Philippines, was engaging with the dolls as a way of processing, of sorting through memories and feelings, even as an adult, as if it's a showing us that it can be a need that we have, a resource that's there that we don't tap into because we don't play with dolls anymore. Right. Yeah. And whole adult communities. Um, How did, where did the visual idea of Barbie come from? Well, as Ruth Handler admits in the film, um, she had this idea with the paper dolls She took a trip to Germany in 1956 with her family. They saw displayed this German doll called Lily, uh, which was basically kind of a a men's uh, sex, not a sex toy for overt sexuality, but kind of the kind of thing you dangle from the rearview mirror that looks sexy. She was modeled after a drawing in a tabloid. Uh, I I don't even remember how I got it, but I managed to score an actual Lily doll and it's in the film. That's a real Lily doll as well as drawings of the Lily. And she saw this doll and Barbie's, you know, a pretty, pretty close copy of the doll in every way. And she brought it to the back to the factory and said, let's make this. And of course, as Barbie nation tells, you know, the men was mostly men, you know, said, no way we can't make this doll with breasts. But she went ahead and got them to do it anyway. Yeah. She got them to do it anyways. And it wasn't clear it was going to be a hit. And again, as Barbie nation tells the Barbie doll coming out in 1959 really came out during the period, the birth of television toy advertising. And, um, you know, this film tells that before that time, people didn't go to toy stores and say, I want this. They asked the toy store owner, what would you get for an intelligent five-year-old? <laughs> right. Cause every five-year-old's intelligent. <laughs> right. The guy says that every five-year-old was intelligent, but the direct marketing of the Barbie on television was this massive breakthrough and and the money just poured in like a torrent to Mattel. Which came first, Barbie or Mattel? Uh, Mattel came first and they did some money losing products. Um, Ruth and Elliot tell the story. I don't think it's in the film about how, I forget if it was a guitar, they had the singing guitar And it was selling incredibly and they were like so happy. And then they realized that they were losing like a dime on every guitar. 
you know, if their production costs were higher than they were making, I was like, oh no. Those early business lessons that everybody has to learn. Right. So their story is very interesting because they met in high school. They were, she was, they, they were the love of each other's lives, right? Yes, they were. And as Ruth tells the story, she, Elliot was an artist and she says, and I didn't want to live poor as the wife <laughs> of an artist, you know? So she kept, you know, she kept ghosting him and ghosting him. And finally he convinced her uh, to marry him. And they came out to California with a car and no money. Um, and the first breakthrough was Elliot's. Elliot was one of the um, first designers in the United States to make housewares out of lucite, which was a new material, a beautiful material. Several of his designs are shown in the film. They're gorgeous. I want them. Um and they made, he made housewares and as Ruth says, and out of the scraps, they made dollhouse furniture. And that's what launched Mattel. So she was really the business mind behind Mattel. Yes. And he was the, the design creative force there. Yes. He also created Hot Wheels. Most boys of that generation had Hot Wheels. Yep. They were everywhere. And they made a lot of guns. I mean, some of the pictures in Barbie Nation, so Ruth and Elliot posing with their guns, toy so guns. How important was Barbie to the success of Mattel? It was very important. It was always there. Once Barbie hit, she was their biggest selling product. And she was their biggest selling product year after year after year. And some years she was going up by 10 and 20%. The thing that I haven't fully investigated, so, you know, take this with a grain of salt, but when I went, my distributor, Rocco, thank you, Rocco, asked me to possibly update the figures on Barbie sales. So I looked at the figures from, you know, 1998 to the present, and they hadn't gone up that much. So I, I really do think that, you know, Barbie went up and up and up for many, many years. And then there has been probably a recent period uh, where, again, it's possibly the Disney princesses or other dolls or something else. Because Barbie, there were certain things about Barbie that were unique at the time. One was this adult representation. Um, Two was were all the clothes and the accessories and the townhouses and the cars. and so mix that to, and then later on, like I know when my daughter was little, Polly Pockets emerged, mm-hmm. which had teenage creatures, but they were smaller. They could get dressed up. They had, um, so it was, you know, they owed a big nod of thanks to Barbie, but it was starting to be another kind of product that was on the market that could also sell and create a million little pieces to cover your floor that you stepped on all the time. Um, right. But that she was, and then, and she would bring all of these different things together. But um, I saw that they were new products very much in the spirit of Barbie. Um, Right. Right. And then American Girl was a big thing at some point, those American Girl does. And of course, Mattel bought American Girl. Which makes sense. Even though American, uh, much higher price tag, point of entry with American Girl. Right. Right. And an attempt to be uh, more politically correct. And I don't actually know. Um, I don't know enough. young girls now to know what's going on with them. So so you didn't mention the numbers and there are a few that I remember from the film that were kind of staggering that every on the numbers meant that every little girl in America had at least eight Barbies. Yeah. Kind of mind boggling and a $2 billion business. 
Right. It was very mind boggling. Um, and it is, um, you know, they really, they have really done well with it. And I think they're thinking it's just going to be so fascinating to follow the Greta Gerwig Barbie movie, uh, which I think Barbie Nation is really a great, you know, primer for to really go deeply and the Black Barbie film Mm -hmm. and see where we end up to see. I'm interested to see if all of this leads to a resurgence in Barbie sales or not. Or a a backlash. It'll be interesting to see. Yeah. Um, As you were, how did the re-release happen for you? Um, Did you say, oh, it's the right time for this? Or was it happening separately from these other Barbie films? No, it was, uh, like I say, I, one of my regrets in life had always been that I didn't get the black Barbie part into Barbie nation. And I felt bad about that. And, um, so, you know, in the back of my mind was always this idea. I mean, we did put out in 2003 when D- DVDs came in, I did a DVD version of Barbie Nation, which had a whole short on Black Barbie because I have a lot more material than I put in the film. But it wasn't in the film. It wasn't in Barbie Nation. Um, and then a couple of years ago, I read that they there was in the works going to be a Hollywood live action Barbie movie, which I knew was a big deal because I knew Mattel Mattel had refused to do it. Um, You knew there'd be real horsepower behind it. Yes. And I thought, here's my opportunity. Here's my chance. Um, But it took me a while to, you know, find the right distributor. So again, thank you to Rocco. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about one, um, about how Black Barbie emerged and, um, the various efforts at diversification with Barbie and the various kinds of dolls that are being produced for audiences around the world. Yeah. Well, again, I recommend that your viewers really check out the film um, Black Barbie. It's a documentary. If you Google Black Barbie documentary, you'll find it and be able to see where they are in their process. Like I said, they're just in the film festival process. Um You know, Barbie was, you know, a really white doll, white blonde doll. Um, And um, Mattel, I mean, what I have to say and what the Black Barbie film really reveals is that um, in the 60s, there, of course, the big um, racial uprising in Watts, California, and Mattel is based in Los Angeles. um, And this had a really big effect everywhere. And money came in and people got involved with community development in Watts. And one of the things that came out of that was a block, black doll toy, toy company called Shindana Toys. I hadn't known, I knew about that from my black doll research. I hadn't known that Mattel gave them $20,000 back in the 60s to help start that company and gave them personnel that Ruth was really, Ruth Handler of Mattel was really involved with that. Prior to that, Mattel had introduced a black doll called Francie, who was not Barbie, but Barbie's cousin. And as as is told in Barbie Nation, that didn't go over too big. Nobody knew what to make of that. Um, I think this was at a time where interracial marriage would have been illegal in the United States. That's right. It was well, it was probably a little bit after that, but right, people don't remember that interracial marriage was illegal, that you didn't have 
and even after it was legalized, you, you know, white people didn't really acknowledge that they might have had them because there was always, you know, in slavery, of course, there was those times there was rape. So there were a lot of people that were you could have had black uh, cousins. Um, but the doll wasn't um, did not reflect um, the features uh, or the style of people of the African diaspora it was like. You know, mm-hmm. black dolls, the history of most black dolls in the United States were just white dolls painted black. Right. Um, one of the things I didn't know the black Barbie documentary reveals is there was a time, according to that documentary, where black dolls were actually illegal in the United States. Um, so it was very hard to get black dolls. It was very hard for uh, children of color to get any dolls that looked like them. Um so this Francie comes along. It's not till 1980 that Mattel made the first actual black Barbie. And she was designed by a black designer by the name of Kitty Black Perkins. Um, and she is she's featured in Barbie Nation. The section on black Barbie opens with this really beautiful 1980 black Barbie that somehow does feel evocative. Um, and many black people have said that she does feel evocative of you know, some of their spirit and style. Um, Mattel kept making, and that was a big deal because she was Barbie. She was not a cousin. She was the Barbie. She was black Barbie. And Mattel subsequent to that has made other dolls. Um, Kitty Black Perkins did the Shawnee line of dolls, which is also featured in Barbie Nation, where the bodies, um, and and features are you know more representative of the black community and they come in there's three different ones of them with different skin tones um so progress was made you know but i think from what i've learned from a lot of um black people saying in the black barbie documentary you know it's way way far from really being you know, it's still Barbie still exists in a world, as we can see in the Greta Gerwig film, where there's sort of a central Barbie who's right. white and blonde and looks a certain way, and everybody else is an accessory. Right. So clearly there's continued room for growth, although these did represent important moments of change. So now I, fast forward to today. Um, you've got this re-release coming out. Um, what other things are you working on? What's the next story or question that's capturing your imagination, even amidst all this Barbie frenzy? Yeah, well, I got to say, um, I'm really thinking about my life. I really realized the other day I, I've spent my whole life dealing with screens and media. I've been a media person. I'm turning 70 this year. Um, and I'm questioning that, uh, I'm certainly very involved in social media, both for Barbie nation and for my other film, bad attitude, but I am wondering if I want to do some more, uh, work, um, that is more direct, um, and not mediated by screens and audio recordings. Would that be more writing? I don't know. I really don't know. I'm going to I'm going to dive into the uncertainty of the future. So as a writer, when you started out as a journalist and a poet and writing, did you write every day? 
I did write every day. I still write every day. It's, it's part of who you are. Yeah. But it's the question of what are you going to, in what is it part of the work that you choose to do? Right. Right. I don't know if, um, I'm that attached anymore to what I have to say. (laughs) I was going to ask you shared with us your age. How is being at this stage of your life shaping that agenda? Yeah, it's, it's really shaping it. It's absolutely shaping it. It's really interesting. Um, uh, I'm very interested in getting old. I'm interested in dying. Um, and that I think is the metaphysical question in Greta Gerwig's Barbie from what we've seen from the trailers. Barbie suddenly gets interested in death and this is a big turnoff. Um, <laughs> I guess that's the other thing that we have as humans, uh, right? We have our mistakes, we have our creativity and we have our death. And that's the things that, uh, AI doesn't have, um, and there was a, oh, it was Andy McDowell, the, an actress I've always loved that said recently, she was interviewed when she was starting to go gray. And somebody said to her, oh, that gray, it really ages you. And she said, good, because I know what it's like to be young. I've done that. I've been there. I'm interested in being old. And that's how I feel. I mean, yeah. I hope I'm healthy. <laughs> yes, that is essential. I hope you are too. And all of us. Um So Susan, for people who want to learn more about your work, Barbie Nation, where can they find you and all the stuff you've made? Yes, it's very easy because on social media, we're at Barbie Nation Doc on all social media, on Twitter, Insta, Facebook, um, on TikTok, at Barbie Nation Doc. And I also have, you know, the website is BarbieNation.com. And please come there. We have this fantasy on the website that if people come and sign up for the mailing list and tell us their stories, um, that will get them to record iPhone interviews and we'll put the stories on the website and we'll have this graphic that looks like, you know, there was the old television show that says that there's a million stories in the naked city. Um, And we would put a million stories in the lit windows. of. Okay. So you all heard Susan? (laughs) Go sign up, share your story so we can have a million stories with Barbie Nation. Susan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Laura. And if any of you listening have a question about anything you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can find our podcast 24-7 wherever you get yours. And be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle at SXM Business. And I'm on LinkedIn. Thanks, as always, to my amazing producers, our team and analytics at Wharton. I'm Laura Zarrow, and this is Women at Work. Un-